Abby was the only thing on my mind, and I really thought that she was coming back. I thought that I could convince her. I moved on. I got my own place. No more reminders of him. Like, that's not the way I saw it. The way I saw it was I was just in love with her. I was, I mean, I was going to her apartment daily. At least I thought it was her apartment until I found out that she took off. She thought that she could lose me by just moving. I've never really lived alone before. I get scared still, knowing he's still out there. I mean, with social media and, you know, all of our mutual friends, I don't exactly understand how she thought moving was going to keep me from finding her. The fractured relationship between Will and Abby has clearly deteriorated even more. To be stalked, to be someone's prey, is terrifying. A living nightmare. I'm Allison Becker, and this is Obsession, a podcast co-produced by Focus Features and LA Times Studios, and funded by Focus Features in support of the film Greta. Earlier in this series, we dug into the concept of limerence, or unrequited love, and looked at how it can veer into obsessive or pathological behavior. We examined how our life experiences can trigger an obsession and how our brains and bodies are affected. In this episode, we explore stalking. Let's begin with a general definition. Basically, stalking is the obsessive pursuit or harassment of someone that would cause them to be fearful. But what behaviors constitute stalking? How common is it? And what's going on in the mind of the stalker? There have been a lot of high-profile cases over the years, many of them covered extensively in the media. One such case was the tragic murder of Rebecca Schaefer, a young actress killed in the doorway of her Hollywood apartment by an obsessed fan nearly 30 years ago. The man responsible, Robert John Bardo, was convicted by a young prosecutor for Los Angeles County who went on to become one of the most recognized lawyers in the world. That young prosecutor was Marsha Clark. It all started with him writing some kind of rather innocuous letter to her in which he talked about global warming, I believe, something very neutral and platonic. And he wrote back and said something nice to him about what a nice, genuine letter he wrote. And that was her mistake. Rebecca Schaefer sent Bardo a personalized postcard thanking him. She signed off with a little heart and the words, take care, Rebecca. This was all the motivation her stalker needed. At the time of her death, she was just 21 years old. An actress on the rise, she'd starred in the sitcom My Sister Sam, opposite Pam Dauber, who was famous as the Mindy to Robin Williams' Mork in the mid-80s. The night before she was killed, Rebecca threw a birthday party for her grandfather. An hour before she was killed, she was busy getting ready for a meeting with director Francis Ford Coppola about a role in The Godfather Part Three. Her buzzer rang around 10.15, the morning of July 18, 1989. The intercom was busted, so she went down to answer the door, still wearing her bathrobe. She had no way of knowing the obsessed fan she'd written back to, a complete stranger to her, had arrived in L.A. that morning by bus from his home in Tucson and was now at her door with a 357 Magnum. How did he know where she lived? At that time, you could go to a private eye and pay him 25 bucks and say, get me somebody's address. And he would go to the DMV and get it. And that's what happened. The PI that Bardo paid found her address in the Department of Motor Vehicles and gave it to Bardo. And then Bardo was able to 
go straight to her door, knock on the door. She came to her door, and that's how he was able to get access to her and, and kill her. An article from the L.A. Times during Bardo's 1991 trial described how he went to her building twice on the morning he shot her. The first time, she'd greeted him at the door, spoken to him about his previous fan letter, smiled, and told him to, quote, please take care. She even shook his hand. Bardo then went back to Schaefer's building because he'd wanted to give her a letter and a CD that he'd forgotten to give her the first time. It was during that return trip, when Rebecca came face-to-face with him for the second time that morning, that she seemed annoyed, according to Bardo. This perceived rejection angered him, and he retaliated. Like many stalkers, Bardo had spent years trying to make contact with the object of his obsession. He had gone to the ranch at Warner Brothers where they shot my sister Sam, and he had brought her a teddy bear and a box of chocolates, and the security guard, like so many back then, had no idea of the significance of this, that, you know, a strange guy who didn't know her coming up to deliver. He just thought of him as a fan, and he did not let him see Rebecca. He drove him back to the train station and, you know, advised him, counseled him to get on with his life. That security guard at the Warner Brothers lot had no idea that Bardo was a serial stalker. Bardo had been so fixated on singer Debbie Gibson that he went from his home in Arizona to hers on Long Island. He reportedly even slept outside her local high school. Bardo was also inspired by other celebrity stalkers, like Mark David Chapman, who shot John Lennon outside his New York apartment building in 1980, and John Hinckley Jr., who shot President Ronald Reagan the following year to gain the attention of actress Jodie Foster. Like Chapman and Hinckley, Bardo carried a copy of J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye when he committed his crime. And that idea of hiring a cheap private investigator to pull address info from the California DMV? Bardo was inspired by an article he read in People magazine about actress Teresa Saldana's stalker. She'd just starred in the film Raging Bull when she was nearly stabbed to death in 1982 by a man who'd gotten her mother's unlisted phone number and then called, posing as director Martin Scorsese's assistant and asking for Saldana's home address so they could contact her about a movie role. Teresa Saldana was stabbed 10 times outside her apartment. She spent the next four months in the hospital recovering. Her attacker spent 14 years in prison, where he continued to make threats against Saldana. While the tragedies of Rebecca Schaefer and Teresa Saldana are on the extreme end of the spectrum, in the case of Will and Abby, the end remains unknown. It didn't really take long uh, just uh, doing some casual internet searching, and I found that uh, she'd posted her resume up on a, a job site. And, I mean, it had all the information right there, phone number, a new address. I just I felt good again just knowing that I, that I could find her. Yeah, I'm finally starting to feel normal again. My life's getting back on track. So I sent her a message. I found you, Abby. How is your new place? And as soon as I got outside of her place, I thought, you know, I'm not leaving here. No more hiding. This is it. It's, it's do or die time. So here are some sobering facts. According to the National Center for Victims of Crime, more than 60% of women are stalked by a current or former partner. At nearly 45%, men are not far behind. 54% of women killed by an intimate partner who stalked them previously reported the behavior to police. Marsha Clark became a household name as the lead prosecutor in the O.J. Simpson murder trial. 
he stood accused of the murders of his estranged wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Goldman. Simpson was a case. He stalked Nicole, no question he did, but that was a domestic violence issue. There was a trail of domestic violence between Simpson and Nicole that went back years before the murders. But no one took it particularly seriously back then, particularly in the 80s, 70s. It was just at office, just a family affair. It's a private thing between two people. There was very little weight given to reports of domestic violence when a woman even had the courage to make a report. Either they refused to report because they knew they'd get ignored, or they did report and got ignored. There was not much attention paid to this kind of behavior, which is why women died as frequently as they did, because the precursor violent behavior was ignored as irrelevant and a family affair. And then when it resulted in murder, everybody was shocked. How did that happen? Well, it was very obvious. It could have been very obvious had they paid attention. And I think in that respect, um, Nicole made reports, as we know, multiple 911 calls. And as she said, I keep calling, I keep reporting him and nothing happens. You don't do anything. And for quite a few years, uh, he was able to sign a football and walk away. If you love someone, you don't terrify them. You don't terrorize them. You don't threaten them. So I would take issue with the notion that this is obsessive love. It's obsessive behavior. That's for sure. But I don't think love has anything to do with it. We're going to take a break for a minute to speak with actress Chloe Grace Moretz, star of the Focus Features film Greta. The movie explores the darker side of obsession and attachment. Chloe plays Frances, a young woman whose moment of kindness towards an elderly woman sparks an intense friendship that soon turns pathological. We do know that there there have been others, even in the you know the trailer we see the purses with all the things on the back that she is a serial. You know, it's it's kind of a serial obsession to do this to people, to prey on good Samaritans. And that it is this kind of happenstance, you know, luck of the draw kind of thing. It's it's whether or not you choose to walk by the purse or pick it up that day. And how many times do we think we're doing good things? Does it make us kind of question ourselves and be like, well, do we want to return the wallet that we find? You know, it's... um. You want to think that you're going to be the best you can be and be that good Samaritan, but once you see this movie, you kind of go like, I don't know if I want to hold the door for that person, because what if? So what's going on in the stalker's mind? They often see themselves as victims. Any criticism or rejection is a major blow to them. They're prone to fantasizing and cannot always distinguish between fact and fiction. They obsess. Their thought patterns are often so repetitive that they have trouble sleeping, eating, and functioning normally. Some mental health experts believe that limerence, also known as unrequited love, is a combination of addiction and obsessive-compulsive disorder, and that stalking can be a dangerous progression of this mindset. Psychology professor Al Waken is one of those experts. Obviously, if you're addicted to another person and you're obsessed with the other person, trying to follow the other person and keep tabs of their movements and comings and goings is almost a natural thing to do. Uh, Generally speaking, the person in the state of limerence is not necessarily violent, but sometimes they do go together. But often when an individual becomes violent, 
it is because the limerence has gone off the deep end. Sometimes the limerence becomes so difficult for the person who's experiencing it to continue to go on that it moves them to violence. And in the correspondence I've gotten from individuals who have been in serious trouble with the law because of that or are incarcerated, uh, they indicate that when they got moved to violence, they really didn't know what was happening to them. They just completely lost their heads. So these criminals claim they've lost their heads, but the activities associated with stalking, like following and spying on the victim and messaging and calling them constantly, are planned out. Here's Marsha Clark. This crime is all about premeditation. This crime is all about planning and forethought uh, and malice of forethought. So, you know, the stalker is um, thinking of ways to get to the victim, thinking of ways to intimidate and harass the victim, and in doing so, is premeditating. By definition, these crimes are always premeditated. There can be no such thing as an impulsive stalker. (laughs) What, oops, I accidentally ran into your house? (laughs) You know, that's never the case. So when you talk about the mentality or the nature of the mens rea, as we say in the law, um, when it comes to stalking behavior, it's always premeditated. I didn't go to law school like Marsha Clark. I learned my legal jargon from Judge Judy, but I can tell you with confidence that mens rea means simply state of mind. Remember, we explored the state of mind of the love-obsessed earlier in this series. We looked at how our life experiences can open us up to unhealthy relationships and How stories from the Bible to Greek mythology to English literature to modern pop songs influence how we idealize love. In any number of books, TV shows, and films, we see how these ideals are distorted by stalkers. The main character in Marsha Clark's new ABC TV series, The Fix, has a frightening stalker who terrorizes her. In director Neil Jordan's films, including the Oscar-winning The Crying Game, stalkers are often central characters. He revisits pathological relationships and inappropriate attachments in his latest movie, Greta, which he wrote and directed. Here's Neil Jordan. So I suppose I'm really interested in that theme of the way human need to, you know, to kind of create a romantic ideal or a romantic kind of castle in the air around somebody who just accidentally happens to wander into the world. I mean, it's it's a theme I've dealt with quite a bit before, you know. It's a common thing, isn't it? I mean, everyone has experienced inappropriate relationships and inappropriate attachments and absurd attachments. And sometimes people, everyone has experienced being hounded by somebody who wants a friendship or an emotional attachment or a romantic attachment out of them. And sometimes we all have done the same thing ourselves. I mean, it's very easy to fall into, into that kind of obsession, I think. Author Caroline Kepnes wrote the best-selling book, You, which is narrated by the villain, a delusional yet charming stalker named Joe, whose prey is a beautiful, smart young woman named Beck. So I wanted to get into the mindset of this guy who thinks of himself as a nice guy and see how contagious that is. And it's that secret, positive thinking idea that because this guy walks around thinks of himself as a martyr, a savior, even when he's breaking boundaries and committing murder. Part of you is understanding where he's coming from, not that you agree with him, but you're seeing how he gets there and how he maintains this idea of himself as a hero, as a romantic, when in reality he's a criminal. 
But I wrote this book because I think we all know the feeling when we're thinking about someone too much. And we live in a time where it's so easy to at least privately act on those thoughts by Googling someone, finding out things you maybe shouldn't know, wouldn't know. And that only feeds an obsession. And the minute that you're learning more about someone from the Internet than you are from interacting with that person, I think that's the road to the very dark place. Rejection can lead to that dark place. Meet Erica. She dated a man on and off for several years. When she tried to break it off for good, he spent the next three years relentlessly pursuing her. As soon as I moved into my new apartment, I get a text from a number and it says, Erica, you can run, but you can't hide. Why did you move all the way down to Orange County? He, he would text me from different numbers. So I, I think he would have like an app that would change his number and text me because he would be like, I miss you. I want, I want to be back with you. Like, please, like begging. Like the feeling was like, like a dark feeling. Like it was almost like he was a poison in my life. It took my mind and my body like a while to shake that off. And the only thing... I could think of to get him to leave me alone um, was to tell him that I was engaged and expecting a child. That was pretty much the end of him stalking me. Statistics from the Stalking Research Center claim roughly half of all victims were stalked before the age of 25, and about 14% of female victims experienced stalking between the ages of 11 and 17. That's a startling statistic to hear, I mean, it's frightening and difficult to deal with a stalker at any age, but just imagine how hard it must be as a young child or teenager. A national study on stalking victimization done nearly a decade ago found that of the more than 3 million victims surveyed, more than a third believed they were targeted out of retaliation, anger, or spite. As unfortunate as it may be, it's not overly surprising that anger would fuel stalking. Feelings of anger and revenge are most often at the core of violent and harassing behavior. What's more shocking is that nearly a third of stalking victims in this survey believe their stalker was seeking control by stalking. The action of stalking itself is succumbing to uncontrollable urges. There were no legal protections against stalking either in California or the rest of the country when Rebecca Schaefer was gunned down in 1989. Here's Marsha Clark. California was the first state to enact anti-stalking laws. That was enacted in 1990. I think there were a lot of women in particular who were turned away by police who said, I understand he's been calling you and I understand he's been following you. There's nothing we can do about that until he acts out and does something to you, um, physically to you. And now that has changed. There are certain requirements that must be met. You can't just say somebody's following me um, and that's enough. You would need proof of an intent to harass and, and um, threaten or intimidate. But, um, but that, that's behavior that previously was not punishable um, and now is, at least. And it's punishable as either a misdemeanor or a felony, depending on certain circumstances. And if someone has a prior conviction for stalking, then the second time he's arrested and convicted, that becomes an automatic felony. Um, with a term of up to five years in state prison. These updated laws have certainly helped safeguard other Hollywood celebrities in recent years. Musician Justin Timberlake was granted a three-year restraining order against the Craze fan who broke into his home in 2009. 
the obsessed fan who terrorized Halle Berry by repeatedly breaking into her home over a three-day period in 2011, was sent to jail for more than a year, given five years of probation, and ordered to undergo a year of mandatory psychological counseling. More than half of all U.S. states classify stalking as a felony, if it's a second or subsequent offense, or there are other factors like possession of a deadly weapon. And as of today, stalking is a crime in all 50 states. On the next episode of Obsession. My neighbor called me and told me she saw someone outside my house, and I just knew immediately it was Will. Found a window um, that was locked, but it wasn't that hard to get it open, and I, I let myself in. I got so worked up being there, I, I, it felt like our apartment again. I figured I would just take a shower. I just, I don't know, made sense in my head. It just kind of seemed natural. Afterwards, I got out and I sat down on the bed and I just sort of fell asleep. If you or someone you know is struggling like Will, there's help. You can get information on mental health treatment services in your area by going to samhsa.gov or calling 1-800-662-HELP to speak to someone. Free, confidential, 24-7, 365 days a year. You're not alone. This podcast was created on behalf of Focus Features by LA Times Studios and does not reflect the views of the Los Angeles Times, nor does it involve the editorial or reporting staffs of the Los Angeles Times.